0: Welcome to episode 8 of the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm your host, James Lloyd, and in this week's episode, I speak with Michael Keane, a behavioral neuroscientist. Michael's the founder of The Actualized Clinic, a Dublin based mental health service specializing in neurofeedback. During our talk, Michael explains how neurofeedback is a learning based treatment that trains the brain to function more efficiently. Although Neurofeedback's evidence base is largely in the treatment of ADHD, it can be a powerful tool for other mental health problems, as well as for performance enhancement, such as the Connick Rugby team, who Michael has worked with extensively. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Michael Keane, a behavioural neuroscientist, academic and founder of the Actualized Clinic. Hi Michael, thanks for joining me today.
1: No worries, James. How I'm are you doing? doing? Very
0: good, thank you. Uh, we're going to talk about neurofeedback today, Michael. I don't know if you could start by maybe just explaining what neurofeedback is.
1: Sure. Uh, it's a neuroscience based brain training. I mean, I think that's the, the simplest way I can describe it. It uses a combination of EEG technology, so the standard um, electrophysiological recording of brain activity um to monitor in real time what your brain is doing and then it feeds that activity back to you in a way that's easy to understand so via a game or some kind of a graphic on a screen and then it utilizes the properties uh, of operant conditioning so in order to help you to change the way your brain is functioning so for example there's a particular type of activity we want to have more of or less of the game or the interface is set up such that when you randomly, let's say we want to increase a particular type of activity, you randomly increase that activity as measured by the EEG, you'll get some reinforcement on the screen. And if that activity diminishes, the reinforcement disappears. And very quickly over time, your brain learns to pair particular types of brain function with particular reinforcement on the screen. And through that process, then one can gain some more control over brain function and then thereby over behavior Mm.
0: so the the EEG monitors the brain activity and then depending on and the response it will differ in the feedback it gives via whatever the the medium is so maybe a game or a, a video
1: yeah that's absolutely right yeah and it's um like a lot of operant conditioning it's accidental at the beginning so you're looking at a screen and things are happening randomly, but over time people learn to understand what they need to do in order to make the game play or to get score more points or whatever it is. And and, and often if you ask people what they're doing, so what do you do to make the, the game play? Uh, people can struggle to articulate that, but they, as it were, know what to do. And I suppose it's like a lot of other things. We, you know, down through the years, as we've been explaining it to people and people have been explaining it to us, a useful analogy to think about is trying to explain to your granny on the phone how you stay balanced on a bicycle. Or if you're going around a corner on a bicycle, that moment, you know, you've gone too fast and you're going to hit the wall, the far side. You know, know, we can understand the, the physics of it and the mechanics of it, but to Explain to somebody what you're doing in that moment to keep the bike balanced is actually it's a difficult thing to articulate, but because it's difficult to articulate doesn't mean that it's not uh, you know a phenomenon that you can understand at least. it's Very precise and very experiential, Um, and something that you Mm -hmm. kind of have to go
0: through. And so with the operant conditioning, by that you mean so that if let's say they might be experiencing something that might be deemed negative there might be something that would change on the screen that would maybe be either reinforcing that behavior or like a punishment, you know, to kind of decrease that.
1: Yeah, there wouldn't be any punishment in the sense that it's just the absence of reinforcement. So it might be, it can be a simple little robot walking, for example. And the robot walks when you do what you're what we're trying to get you to do and he just stops otherwise or children can watch a film for example and or a youtube video and the video just stops and you know they have to try and make it go again and and of course in that moment if you get i mean if you get agitated or angry or upset about it you generally you know p- people get a bit uh, move a little bit more and that creates noise in the eg and then the whole thing stops anyway so it it also prevents that sort of byproduct agitation from occurring as well because again that uh, you lose your reinforcement by that just by virtue of the movement itself oh. so could we kind of think of an example
0: just to give that even and um, put more meat on the bones of that uh, michael
1: yeah sure i mean the the, the, the classic example is adhd uh, you're you're trying for example to reduce theta activation in the frontal and prefrontal cortex And uh, for children with ADHD, it's often high. I mean, it's not exclusively, uh, but often you get elevated theta activation, which is at least correlated to what probably causes the, the problems with the executive function. And in the neurofeedback training, what we're trying to do is get them to reduce that theta activity. So they're wearing the EEG cap. They're looking at the screen and we're measuring that activity in real time. And as it accidentally or randomly drops, I mean, brain function is dynamic. As it randomly drops, you, you pop in, the, the software pops in with a little reinforcement. And, you know, kids really like that. And then over time, I mean, we measure it and manage it and, and uh, you, you keep the reinforcement schedule at the, the optimum for learning. So early on, of course, you give a kid uh, lots of reinforcement. So they enjoy coming to the clinic to watch a movie or whatever. Uh, But as time goes on, you make it a a bit more and more difficult, which um, making it easy is good for acquisition and making it slightly more difficult makes it a bit more resistant to extinction. So you're, you're trying to track the optimum learning curve as per the sort of operant conditioning rules. I mean, that's just one example of how it how one might... So someone um, with ADHD who's trying to reduce some of the more
0: problematic manifestations of it, um, so they might be, yeah. let's say, watching a movie, and then hmm. what would be the trigger point? So let's say they're watching, a, I guess, a kid's movie, and then something will happen that yeah. is predetermined, you know, a part, of, a part of the brain that will be switched on that you might consider to be part of the problem
1: uh, flares up yeah i mean every brain is different and and this is getting maybe more into the 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 science of it and the the different types of neurofeedback that one might might encounter uh we always start with an assessment which essentially is a baseline brain recording you know a standard kind of thing you would do anywhere and we compare it to a normative database and see areas of similarity and areas of difference and we compare it to an age matched Uh, sex matched database and we find those areas of deviance and, and of course every brain is going to be different so you'll see lots of areas of deviance but our job is to say right here are your symptoms here are the things that you're struggling with and we know that they are controlled by these brain areas and when we see differences in those brain areas we understand that these are the brain areas are the types of brain activity that we want to change it's not about just trying to make your brain more like the normative database. It's about understanding what dysfunction looks like, what neural dysregulation looks like, but only if that's relevant. So we would never do these, or rarely do these, in the absence of a clinical interview beforehand, which is aimed at sort of elucidating symptoms and whatnot. And then, in the process of neurofeedback, we're interested only in that set of neural networks or that brain area that's relevant for the particular behavior and because you you were using eeg you can measure it uh, as close to real time as is possible and you're just measuring the deviance or the deviation from that normative database and it's in and it's dynamic so it's moving all the time closer and and, uh, and further away and all we're doing is catching those moments when it's randomly moving closer to the database or randomly if you want to think about it another way being more regulated or less unreliable Mm. and you're just catching those moments repeatedly over time and constantly reinforcing those and just ignoring the rest and on those times when you're reinforcing them so maybe either
0: adding in the walking robot or taking away the walking robot and does the person engaging in it do they use kind of regulation, uh, kind of self-regulation techniques, or is it just that it it comes about of its own accord through operant conditioning?
1: Well, it's a difficult one to... It's kind of like putting somebody up on the bike and saying, you know, off you go. And they fall off and they fall off and they fall off. But you make it easy at the beginning. You you put stabilizers on. You make it so simple that they're going to get reinforcement 80% of the time. And everybody has their own ways of doing it. Sometimes kids shrug their shoulders and say... You know, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm scoring the points, and and of course we can track that over time. And adults are a little bit different in that adults do try to seek that um, more explicable or more conscious type of what you might call self-regulation. They're trying to find that hook that they can consciously activate. Mm in order to make it work. And I mean, that's difficult to do because I mean, you're, you, you sort of stripped behavior all the way back down to basic neurophysiology. So it can be difficult to, to get all the way back to brain activity to try and consciously control that in a, in a real way, partly because it's so quick. But adults are better able to explain what they're doing and are better able to sort of reproduce that then in a conscious way. Outside of the clinic, so that they can recognize when they're being dysregulated and how they might go about re-regulating themselves based on what they've learned in the in the clinic. Mm, that's
0: that's really interesting. So am I right in thinking that there's there seems to be kind of strengths and weaknesses for both children and adults. That adults maybe try to rationalize things a bit more, although equally they can, and that can maybe be maybe not as effective as kids that just kind of like go with it. Um, but equally, adults can uh, articulate it and use it outside of the sessions, whereas children, they may be able to just kind of go with it, but they might not be able to articulate and maybe have access to self-regulation self-regul- um, self-regul- self-regulate skills outside of the session. I,
1: I think it, it probably strikes at a more fundamental difference between children and adults changing anything. You know, children change so readily in, in, in that their life is, is rapidly unfolding anyway. They're always being faced with new challenges and they're cognitively and emotionally developing so quickly that they can easily forget old ways of doing things and, and take on new ways of doing things. Do you know, I mean, the difference between being four and six, for example, or seven and eight, I mean, this is, you know, kids will say, I'm not seven, I'm seven and a half. Because they see seven as, you know, a, a lot younger than them. So having a new way of doing things is is not as difficult I find for kids. Part of the problem often comes is is in the environment. It's the it's the expectations that are set up. You know, the you you hear a crash bang wallop in the kitchen, and everybody expects that it's this kid has, you know, smashed a plate or whatever it is because they have ADHD and they're always doing that kind of stuff and there are whole sets of behavior rules and environmental rules and different ways of um, stereotyping a kid's behavior that um, can sometimes hold them back in a way. Mm -hmm. So as as the child tries, tries to change what we often do is try to engage the school and the parents or the other adults that are around them and break that way of that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy type behavior. You know, the, 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 the coach or the teacher or the parent who says, he's always in trouble. I knew it was going to be you. You're always doing this. We, we, we want to try and break that cycle. And that's a big barrier, not a big barrier to change, but we make sure in the con- in that sort of therapeutic context that the adults are on board with the uh, the kid for adults in 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 training it can be more variable probably because you know for some people it's um it's a last gasp last chance saloon whereas for other people they have consciously integrated neurofeedback into a whole suite of therapeutic approaches that they're either trying or that they're going to try in some sequence and they're very much engaged in that sort of personal transformation or that journey. Mm. And in that context, they're more ready to change maybe in in, in some ways. But I mean, it's highly variable, but I I think that the, the, the key message we try to get across, particularly to adults, is that your brain will change quite happily. It's lazy and it's efficient and it just does whatever is the easiest or whatever it's used to doing. And, if, if you can teach it an easier way, it'll do that way. That's, so, you know, you've got a 65-year-old with depression coming in. He's saying, look, the, the, what's holding you back here is not your brain, but it's your psychology or your environment or whatever it is. Is You always think this way about yourself or everybody else thinks this way about you or you have set up behavioral patterns which reinforce old ways of doing things your brain will change just as readily as a child's brain but you know you don't you're not a member of any clubs or you don't go out or you always try to avoid this time of day or whatever it is they, those kind of behavioral traits will will bring you back into the rut. so this is again where neurofeedback training doesn't stand alone it's it's you know it's looking at the bio the biopsychosocial if that makes sense and and then when i hear that somebody's is is going to therapy or they're involved in some other uh, any any other type of therapeutic or behavior intervention i always think this is where we're going to get the best results
0: yeah no that that makes a lot of sense that the brain's ability to kind of learn and correct and update can only go so far if the environment is going to just put you back into that same place where you are isolated or um you don't have those social structures to uh, reinforce the changes that you're looking to work towards. Mm-hmm. You mentioned ADHD, and you've
1: also touched upon depression. Um, what kind of problems can it help with? Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's a wide range of things, and and I think when people are investigating neurofeedback, you, depending on where you go, you'll see it um, prescribed as it were for everything and anything. Mm-hmm. So there are two ways of looking at it. W- one, you can look at the evidence. Uh, which is what I would recommend. And uh, you you look at things like ADHD, and the reason I come back to ADHD and the reason we focused on it, we founded the clinic uh, 10 years ago, was that's where the most evidence mm-hmm. is. Uh, first of all, it's the most studied uh, neurodevelopmental disorder or pediatric neurodevelopmental disorder. It's got the clearest e, sort of EEG signature, even though there are subtypes, but you know, it's uh, in terms of mapping behavioural dysfunction onto neurological dysfunction goes. it's the most straightforward. And as a result, then it's it's easier to change that um, or identify that dysregulation and change it. And there are more studies and there's plenty of, of evidence to suggest that it's useful in ADHD. The American Academy of Pediatrics have been heavily involved in that. Um, that, I mean, that's one way of looking at it, right? I mean, so you, so you look at the evidence and you say, right, here's some evidence. And there are some things like ADHD and depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, for which there is uh, significant evidence. And then there are other things for which there is no published evidence or very little published evidence at all. And if you want to come at it from the other side of things, you say, we basically have a mechanism here by which we... Intervene. That is, we understand your symptoms. We understand brain function. We can link the two things together. That is, you, you have depression. Let's say we look at the behavioral um, inhibition activation system in the in the frontal cortex, or uh, yeah, basically uh, between the frontal cortex and and in some sort of central area. And you know, is a, a well established. Um, balance between those two areas particularly in 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 alpha activity uh, such that the behavioral inhibition system generally governs introversion or withdrawal and the behavioral activation system generally governs activation or what we might call extroversion and and, and they're always just playing off against each other and that's you know it's there, there are thousands of papers on, on the what they call the Bispass system. And you have somebody with depression and you can see this alpha asymmetry across this bispass area. You know, the, the sort of law of parsimony would say the simplest explanation is generally the right one. So you've got somebody who's got depression. we see this neurological or neurophysiological signature. We say right well we put two and two together and we say this is at least a significant contributor to your depression. Now I, I'm not saying that that's not related that this depression is not related to life events, to you know neuroendocrine function, to social um, variables and whatnot. But at least from the neurofeedback perspective, you can see a, a neurophysiological biomarker, as it were. Of the depression that you know we, we can make the link between the two. Now, the extent to which that's published in the literature is, you know, in terms of the intervention is relatively weak or relatively little in that respect. So, when we're trying to understand what to do and how to do it, we can either take a look at what's published and what's there, which is obviously the ideal, but on the other hand, you're essentially just taking a template. Where you link brain function to behavior, and you say, well, if we change the brain function, we're going to change the behavior in, in some way, and that's kind of the way we approach it. And and we involve the, the the client in that. In in you know we we want people to be actively engaged with what they do. Particularly, we want people to understand where the science is and where it's not. I I, I personally that that makes me feel a bit more comfortable, but I find that in general it makes most people feel more comfortable and it also bypasses one of the major sort of ethical questions in this is that and I mentioned this earlier on for some people this is last chance saloon and that's I mean that's sort of wide open for exploitation then because you know that people are desperate and people will do anything uh, you know to help their children or to help themselves and uh, and people like that can be easily exploited. So when when they come to us and say, "Look, we're willing to just give it a try," we say, "Okay, we completely get that. We completely understand it. But we go through the exact same process. Let's let's look at the science of it. Let's look at our the, uh, the prognostic data, which might be either the extent to which we can link brain function to symptoms, the extent to which we've had uh, people like this come to us in the past, and how how we've been able to help them." you know etc etc so i think in that respect with any new intervention a relatively new intervention like neurofeedback i think transparency is the key and that is not only ethically more sound but i think actually therapeutically it it works quite well as well because people feel Mm, engaged absolutely if you want to be able to show that something's got a solid
0: base you can see how that helps them Engage with it. Uh, It actually kind of reminds me of EMDR in ways. I'm not sure if you've heard of EMDR before, eye movement desensitization Mm -hmm. reprocessing and so that in itself, you know, is relatively new. It's been around since the kind of mid 80s and was developed initially and the majority of it, the research on it has been done with PTSD and particularly kind of war. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where the majority of the evidence for it is but that doesn't mean it can't be used for other things where what you can take from PTSD, you know, trauma, the hypervigilance, the avoidance that comes with that, how that can map onto other problems that might be traditionally captured by the PTSD diagnosis. And so although it's, uh, someone might be presenting what it's the evidence base is rooted in um, and the evidence base for alternative or for yeah, alternative presentations wouldn't be as strong. And you can definitely make a good case for it. And you can kind of look at the, over, the overlaps between the two. In so that kind of sounds like what you just explained there with um, ADHD mm-hmm. and anything else that could be related to brain functioning.
1: Uh, yeah, and I, I think what's important to say about EMDR is, and I mean, it, it, it's not uh, unique in this respect, is that the mechanism of action is unclear. So people know it works, it's reproducible, Um, but exactly why or how it's working is still Slightly unclear. Now, there are theories on it. I I wouldn't be up on it that awful much, but um, you know that that, that that's I suppose that's another conversation.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, no, that is unclear until will they'll, they'll, um even any training doing it to say that themselves. Um, and just going back to the development of it, you know, we kind of touched upon how it's 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 relatively recent. You know, can you give us a, a brief overview of how it was discovered or developed?
1: Yeah, uh, it's um, it's an interesting story. Uh, and 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 like a lot of other breakthroughs in science, there was a, there was an element of luck and certainly of accident in it. Um, and it goes back to two uh, unrelated uh, research projects which were happening. As I remember, it was in UCLA um, in the fifties. So on the one hand, people had learned, I mean, based on or, or, or building on the work of Berger and all these people in, in the twenties and thirties. Who I mean, Hans Berger was a guy who who first discovered EEG. Uh, and and made it an, an acceptable uh, scientific instrument Um people understood that particular electrical activity as measured on the scalp related to a particular physical or psychological or as they called it mental states and one of the most easily reproducible of those was activation of the sensory motor rhythm 12 to 15 hertz on the sensory strip so uh, essentially um, at the top of your head, between your ears, is a the strip there that, that controls um, motor activity to some degree. And uh, activation there is directly related, in, in, in this particular frequency, 12 to 15 hertz, is directly related to physical activity. So in, in other words, if you can increase sensory motor rhythm there, you get really, really, really calm and still. And uh, they, they learned then that that they could train this up with cats so they implanted electrodes on cat sensory motor strip and the cats learned that if they stayed really 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 still they could give themselves a reward so the electrical activity at that sensory motor strip in the cat was directly related to a little milk broth or a chicken broth that fell into a saucer So the cats learned, if I stay super, super, super still, I get a little treat. So then the experimenters made it more and more difficult. So they raised the bar. In other words, the cats had to do more and more and more of this type of brain activity in order to get the treat. And uh, the cats were able to do it easily enough. So that just demonstrates essentially that, you know, you, you can train brain activity. And that was really interesting. Then completely separately, I mean, this is the 1950s, so you had the space race and the race to the moon and whatnot. And um, one of the big problems with experimentation uh, with rockets and whatnot was um, the use of hydrazine, so a really un- unstable uh, byproduct of uh, rocket fuel, essentially, and it induces epileptic seizures, and you know, can kill you quite easily. So you're exposed to the fumes, you get a seizure, and um, you know, you die. And they were trying all various different types of antidotes with cats. So they were experimenting on cats and they were, you know, exposing them to to the hydrazine fumes. And then the data started to look a bit weird because there were some cats that were really just having seizures at really low doses and other random cats that were not having a response to it at all. And, uh, you know, they increased the amount of exposure and some cats just seemed immune to it. And what they figured accidentally was that some of these cats had been used in a previous experiment. And those cats were the cats who were involved in the initial experiment with the, the neurofeedback stuff. So those cats had learned to do essentially was when this um, epileptiform type activity started to happen, they, had ga- they were able to gain some conscious control over this sensory motor strip and were able to essentially just damp it down. And people put two and two together and said, hang on a second, maybe if we could take humans with epilepsy and teach them to control sensory motor rhythm in a sensory motor strip maybe we could help people with seizures and a person at the lab who couldn't get a driver's license because she had epilepsy tried it and she was able to gain some control over her seizures that was in the 50s and it sort of grew out of that accidental uh, discovery and on and on and on it went and and it, it What's made it more and more accessible, particularly in the last 20 years, is the computing power that EEG requires. You know, it's, I mean, by, by today's standards, it's not huge, but by the standards of even the 80s and the 90s it was quite massive. So if you wanted to uh, measure 64 EEG electrodes in real time, that, that takes quite a lot of RAM. So part of the reason that neurofeedback has become more and more popular is although the, the science of it is older, is the fact that we have just more powerful computers that can do it. I mean, you can run it off a laptop now. You know, you, you can do 128 channels on a laptop easily. You know? But it's it's an interesting sort of accidental scientific discovery. No, it, is, uh, it is
0: funny, again, drawing comparisons with EMDR, that in itself, the person who discovered it, Francine Shapiro, came about it by she was thinking about something distressing while she was out for a walk. I think she'd just been given a cancer diagnosis maybe. She noticed later on that day she didn't feel so distressed about it, and she kind of reflected on what was happening and she thought maybe it was to do with her eye movements. She was walking and looking around and that was where it started, and what it's grown into now is yeah you know, again a chance discovery. What might you say to someone who's only had traditional forms of talk therapy and I particularly think this about about this in an Irish context, um because I guess counseling is so prominent in Ireland. And um, maybe compared to the UK where maybe people are more exposed and have had different types of therapy, they might be more open to trying different things. And, um, you know, what might you say to someone who's had maybe or more traditional forms of therapy who might be kind of hesitant to try such a different approach in neurofeedback?
1: Yeah, It's a question I've had to answer a lot. Um, there are some people for whom this is the missing piece. In other words, they're not buying into talk therapy. They have a you know fairly uh, linear uh, traditional view on on things and uh, and enjoy the mechanistic approach of a tangible scientific instrument which measures a tangible biomarker which you can link to a tangible behavior or emotion or whatnot and they enjoy that sort of linearity and then there are people who um who talk about sort of losing the person. So where is the person in all this data? And, I mean, the the easy answer to that, if such a thing exists, is we look at one element of what it is to be a human being. That is just the physiology. So we're not saying it's the be-all and the end-all. We're not saying that this is going to change your personality. This is training like any other. And we're training you to do a b c and d with your brain it's, it's like um learning to sing right i mean pe- people who go and do singing lessons it's not that now that you're only going to be able to sing this one new way the only difference between now and before is you have control now over how you do it you can do more things with it but you can always do the old way and you know you're not you're not any different you just have more control more regulation You're able to protect your voice better, etc. It's the same with neurofeedback. We're approaching that biological bit of the biopsychosocial. We're giving you some regulation over that and we can measure it. And that is just one part of who you are. And yeah, I I remember once giving a talk to to a group of psychotherapy students, actually. And, uh, you know, I won't say it got heated, but certainly... There was pushback from one or two people who said, "Look, this is not what it is to deal with human beings. Mm. You're missing the whole point." And I said, yeah, "We're not trying to replace psychotherapy. This is just one element of what it means to be a human being, and 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 we can work on that. And and we very firmly boundary that. And of course, it has it has knock on effects, obviously, in your psychology." your sense of yourself, your relationships, all of those kinds of things. But they are byproducts of changes in physiology. And uh, we're very clear on, on where that, that barrier is. And if people are uncomfortable with that, then, you know, that's, that's a decision people make about neurofeedback that they can make about any intervention that they understand.
0: It, it certainly sounds like, as you said, it's very boundary and it doesn't claim to be anything except for
1: what it is. Um, but that... Well, that's us at least. I mean, you you, you you don't have to go far to find uh, websites about neurofeedback that can tell you the opposite or claim the opposite. And, and I, I, I just don't think that helps anybody. Even those small changes could be so significant, you know, to break a cycle for someone. That's exactly mm, okay. it. Yeah. I think the, the, the nicest analogy I ever heard was from a man in his 70s who, who said with, with depression, he said like he had felt like a sunken ship and for the first time in a, in some decades, he felt now he was just at least sitting on top of the water. Now, that he had never managed to do that before, but his real therapeutic journey was starting now when he was almost finished with us. And so where was he going to navigate? What was he going to do? There are so many metaphors in that. But I think that is the, the best way of thinking about it, is that for some people at least, it can be the step that they've been missing up to this point, and that can be a, a break.
0: So if I could maybe give a, an example, or you know, a bit of a vignette, you know, a very minimal vignette of like a, a maybe a, a common presentation, and just to give an idea of how you might look to treat that. You know, you don't. I mean, it can be extensive, so just again a brief overview, and as well how that might be measured. So, maybe someone, let's say, social anxiety. Do you ever get people with social anxiety that come looking? Um, to try, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. We do. So imagine again. I know it can depend because social anxiety can vary. I'm just wondering how. What would the setup be? So, let's say you've measured it and you know the part of the brains that maybe get that get activated that might uh, deviate from the the norm. And um, could you give me an idea of how a, a typical example of how that might be treated and then maybe
1: measured? So we can at the beginning do our clinical interview take the person in for a baseline EEG and from that then we can render 3D functional images and we used to write reports once upon a time and then I'd spend an hour on the phone talking to somebody about the report so now we just do the images in real time and show the person and discuss it with them there and then and you're looking for for some of the markers of hypervigilance or hyperarousal or whatever it might be and so you, so you might see excess activation, beta activation in the cingulate gyrus, for example, or you might see low alpha in the default mode network or uh, you know, excess slow wave activity in the prefrontal cortex, whatever it might be. And you can talk to a person and say, look, this is what we think is happening here. And it's not that you, you walk around all day with, with a hypervigilant amygdala, right? It's not like it's just constantly on the go. It's, this is all about variability and uh, you know if we get down into the sort of the maths and the maths physics of of the EEG and the comparison what we're looking at is variability so if you have uh, limbic system activation which is highly variable what's happening in at least in this context is that with the activation of a social or or a psychological trigger like so that that comes with social anxiety the activation of that emotional gatekeeper in the limbic system is excessive, or it's too powerful, or whatever it is. And it activates that fight or flight, and you get all the things that go with that. And with neurofeedback, what we're trying to do is just reduce that unreliability, or reduce the variance, or give you more control. So think about your standard deviations. We're trying to reduce down the standard deviation, so that the amount of times the amygdala activates, or the The range of activation in that brain area reduces so that it activates when you need it and it doesn't activate when you don't need it. Or you can at least do something about that. And we measure that then just by doing baselines across, you know, after the fifth session, 10th session, 15th session. And you can just then look at it on the screen and say, right, there it was on day one. There it is now. There it is, you know, whenever. And I often think half of our intervention is just measurement. Because people, particularly when it comes to adults who have trauma or depression or, or you know, things like maybe to a lesser extent, social anxiety, they often haven't felt believed or they feel that it's not real or other people tell them then you just need to get up and, and, and get on with it. Um, you show them on a screen after you know, a 20-minute assessment and say, look, there's your, your overactive, this, that or the other. And that, um, I often think even if we stop there, people feel believed or they ask can they take pictures can i email them these images because they want to show them to people and say look i'm actually not mad you know that thing that happened to me 50 years ago is still affecting the way my brain functions and it's sort of you know at at the one hand on uh, on the one hand it's sort of liberating and on the other hand it's sort of devastating you know i mean people struggle with that uh, the, the sort of the physical reality of it and just to come back to that
0: uh, example, um, uh, Michael, I just if you could give me an idea of, you know, what the process would be to, let's say, would they be watching a movie, you know, what would it be that you would be able to elicit this response so that, okay, this part of the brain has been activated, this is where we want to use our operant conditioning to, um, uh, to work on that part.
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to say that the, there's no activation here. The, we're not trying to get this area to sort of poke the bear. Uh, we're not trying to expose people to anything. They, they have their assessment. And let's say you come in, James, and you want to do a session. You sit down, we put the EEG cap on, and uh, I have a protocol made, so I'm, I'm trying to reduce activation in areas A, B, C, and D. And you sit and watch the movie. And you're sitting watching it and it's fading in and fading out and and uh not. and you sit there for 35 minutes uh, you know seven sessions of five minutes and you walk out the door afterwards and you know your session's over and all that's happening during that session is we're measuring millisecond by millisecond what your amygdala that, let's say is doing and we're comparing it to the normative database and just tiny deviation so we set our we set our parameters but once you that amygdala just gets activated randomly and moves away from the database, we stop the movie, or the movie just stops. Now, when I say activated, I don't mean you get a fight-or-flight response. I just mean, whatever, it might be beta activation, you just get the amplitude of beta power in that area increases. We stop, the movie stops. And then when it begins to decrease, the movie starts again. We're not poking you. This is based on the the concept that your range of activation is high. So what we're doing is when it's moving out towards the edges of those range, or the the edges of that range, we're pulling it back towards the center by reducing the reinforcement out at the edges. So as you move out, the movie stops. As you come back in, it starts. And over time, it's just that in and out that creates the, the reinforcement or not. But it's not about any kind of provocation or we're not trying to elicit any symptoms in the in the session brain activity is dynamic it is always changing anyway and we just take advantage of that by essentially reinforcing activation that's closer to more regulated it's not like a stress test where we put you on a treadmill and get your heart rate up to 85% of its peak and see what happens. It's absolutely, definitely not that. It's just looking at normal range of dynamic activity and uh, using that normal range to reinforce what we want your brain to do. So you
0: could be watching a kind of a generic video, not say specific to anything that would trigger something in social
1: anxiety. Oh, no, this is the, the, the reinforcement is just that it can be anything it it sometimes it's just a circle that gets bigger and smaller it can be good fellas or it, you know it can be ben 10 it's whatever you enjoy you know it's the the reinforcement is just a signal and it's not it doesn't form part of the provocation or part of the elicitation of anything it's just a signal to you that this is good that's bad okay no that's uh, that's uh, really cleared that up for me i might go.
0: We're just coming close to time now, Michael. I was wondering before we finish up if you've any books or anything you'd recommend for someone that wanted to find out a bit more about neurofeedback.
1: Uh, so yeah, there, there are two books that people will often uh, use, and they or often have read by the time they get to us. Uh, one is uh, "The Body Keeps the Score," that's written by Bessel van der Kolk, and the other one is "The Neurofeedback in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma." And that's by uh, Seaburn Fisher. So they would be the two that people have often read. And again, neurofeedback's mentioned quite a lot in that. And that brings people to look for neurofeedback in Ireland and, and then brings them to the actualized clinic. Oh, that's great. And I do wonder, uh,
0: you know, mentioning The Body Keeps The Score, how much more trauma becomes part of the everyday lexicon when, when we think about problems we have in the present um the things like newer feedback or EMDR, you know, more trauma-informed approaches will become more popular
1: i think so and 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 i think to be honest um eeg has a role i think in 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 therapy if i could just briefly mention a a, a research study we did back in 2014 with a with the colleagues in germany and we just measured had eeg caps on during therapy and the we're just uh, decomposing the signal in real time so the therapist could see it so as as you're engaging with your client or whatever it is um we can see what their brain is doing and of course it's very dynamic and it's generic and it's difficult to sort of interpret in real time but we looked at one particular type of activation prefrontal gamma activation so 38 to 42 hertz which we we know is related to essentially emotional salience so we expose people to pictures of angry faces or happy faces or you know, puppies or a, a child being scolded or whatever. And you can see the movement left to right. So you get this this sort of left prefrontal gamma activation with positive stuff, right prefrontal gamma activation with the negative stuff. And uh, you, know, you, you sort of calibrate it for everybody. So you say, okay, James, we know that you have this predictable sequence of brain activity, depending on if we're talking about something negative or positive. And then we got people to imagine things, you know, so who's your best friend? So you get this left-sided activation or a teacher you don't like, you get this right-sided activation. And then we got people to just talk about things. And uh, we got one really key breakthrough, which gave us a big insight. We got a girl who was really overweight. So we asked everybody to think about their favorite dessert. So, you know, kids would say ice creams and whatever it was. And, and, and generally you see this, Move to left prefrontal cortex activity, as you would imagine, because it's the delicious dessert. And I remember we had one girl who was who was quite overweight, and she mentioned tiramisu, and you got the the, the predictable left prefrontal uh, gamma swing, and then immediately went over to the right. And so she had she was delighted about her lovely tiramisu, and then you could see the negative evaluation that followed that, about her own body and body image and whatnot, and. Uh, my colleague over there, Teresa, she began to use that as some information so you as a, a trained clinician or a, a trained therapist can understand where you might want to lead a conversation based on whatever cues it might be be either based in language body act um, body language whatever it might be whatever the, the 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 range of skills a therapist might have and we're sort of experimenting with using EEG as an additional tool where in the random course of events, when somebody's talking about something, a therapist might be getting some information that a particular subject is creating this left-sided prefrontal gamma activation. And you say, hang on, every time you mention this person or that event or these, this collection of events or this category of things, you keep having that brain response can we maybe explore that and i think i think that's the sort of the next level of uh, it's sort of like mind mm, reading yeah way, you, know, you really it's, get to it's, see behind so the for therapy yeah yeah and it gives people insights into their mm. own
0: brain too mm. no that's uh it's so fascinating michael and uh, you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of neuroscience and i feel like it's 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 going to be fundamental to psychotherapy and um, it's going to become more and more fundamental to psychotherapy and I really appreciate Mm -hmm. what you uh, explained about how you explained things today. I think you did a fantastic job and I'm sure we could go on, but that is all we have time for today. So I really appreciate your time.
1: Not at all, more than welcome. Thanks very much.